remember our first argument must have been in Spellbound in 1945. Something I said, oh, I don't feel like that. I don't think I can give you that kind of emotion. And you sat there and you said, um, Ingrid, fake it. <laughs> Hitch, that was the best advice I've had in my whole life. <laughs> Because in all the years to come, there were many directors whom I thought gave me quite impossible instructions and many difficult things to do. And just as I was on the verge of starting to argue with them, I could hear your voice come through the air saying, Ingrid, fake it. <laughs> it saved a lot of unpleasant situation and waste of time. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. We are so close to the end, guys. It's scary. It's very scary. I don't know what I'm going to do in a world without Shamley Silhouette. I don't. Well, actually, I do, because I'm already planning the next series. Um, but nevertheless, the influence of uh, Hitchcock has permeated these discussions over the past year and taught us new things about the master suspense reaffirmed old legends um but this this show began initially with a simple pitch to an old friend a simple text that said hey you want to talk about Cary Grant and Hitchcock <laughs> uh and uh thus became the first episode of this show the Shamley silhouette which was uh the pilot who tried to kill thornhill uh, a clever little title that uh has uh, since never been topped Uh, neither has the guest that we are having on today for his third and final appearance on the Shamley Silhouette itself. Um, and uh, I couldn't think of a better way to close out his involvement in the Shamley Silhouette than to talk about another luminary in Hitchcock's stable uh, and collaborations who, frankly, continues to fascinate not just us, but the entire movie-going public in general, whether it was back in the 1940s or today. Um, during the 1940s, Hitchcock collaborated on three pictures with a Swedish actress who was more famous for another role by another director uh, in the grand scheme of Hollywood legend. But that did not stop her from making, at the very least, two classic films with the Master of Suspense uh, before her eventual exile by the Hollywood community uh, due to travesty and uh, an unfortunate understanding of how relationships work at the time. Um, but I speak, of course, of none other than the legendary Ingrid Bergman. Um, and we're going to talk about the three collaborations that uh, Hitchcock did with Miss Bergman between 1945 and 1949. And As I've already alluded to, you should already know who this guest is. I've kind of given him uh, an introduction based off of the history that he has with this show. 
Um, but if you don't uh, believe in his prowess, you should go to realnerdspodcast.com and look up his article, Classic Cool, where he dissects every Cary Grant film that was available to him at his disposal. Um, and uh, if that's not enough, he also is a big fan of Carol Lombard, and he's also a big fan of one Ingrid Bergman. And I'm here to chat once again with none other than Ryan Frost. Hey, Zach, thanks for the intro. Yeah, so we should. Uh, so uh, as of late, with the conversations that I've been recording for Shamley in a post-COVID world, I've been asked. I've been saying the phrase "you're alive," but I already know you're alive because we record each week <laughs> with with real nerds. That real nerds. is true. Um, so yeah. obviously, that that statement is not uh, uh, needed for this episode. But I, I will ask you to uh, relate to the Shamley listeners how you have been doing uh, since COVID. Um, uh, you know, not too bad. This week, though, I it was weird. I so we recorded a podcast on Monday, and mm-hmm. um, I was fine. And then I, um, I don't know, about ten thirty at night, I was like, "Man, I don't feel too hot." Uh-oh. And uh, I checked my temperature, and I was like at a hundred and like one degrees. Shit! I was like, "Man, that's a pretty high fever." Yeah, that's uh, that's that's dangerously close to the one hundred and four before they send your butt to the hospital. Yeah. So um, I went to bed. Uh, I woke up the next morning and it was like a hundred and I was like, man, this sucks. And so then I went to bed again and on Wednesday it was down to 99. And then when I took Tylenol, it went down to like not having a fever at all. (laughs) I called my Lieutenant and I said, Hey, uh, I had this really low grade fever, but, um, I had a lot of work to do, and I said, you mind if I still come in? And he basically sent me a text. It's like, uh, hell no. <laughs> and then um, Thursday, I didn't have a fever at all, and I was fine. Um, Friday, I broke out in a fever again. Uh-oh. Um, and yesterday, I didn't have one, and today, I don't have one. So I don't, I don't know what happened to me. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, if if now we should uh, state up front for the purposes of the show, I guess, like knowing this now, I did not realize this because I hadn't ch- chatted with you much this week. Um, but we are recording this via Skype, and um, uh, but uh, Ryan uh, works tirelessly up and up in his town, um, and so as a result, if he's sick like this, and the lieutenant is telling him, hey stay the fuck home like it's obviously things have become what they've become where if you're sick even a little bit you are going to be sticking around the homestead but it's it's and and, you know i i my my wife is a nurse and um she doesn't believe that i have covid at all it's just i got some sort of fever and that's all i had i don't know what brought it on i had it for like a day and a half and then it went away and then it came back a little bit and then went away again ryan did you eat a bad convenience store burrito and then get Motaba virus. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> uh, okay. We'll have to call in uh, Randall Graves and James Woods and uh, Gilbert Gottfried to help you quarantine <laughs> yeah. your house. <laughs> yeah. So it's it weird because it was funny because I actually didn't go anywhere um, last weekend when we recorded on um, Monday. Yeah. Uh, that was my second day off. And <clears throat> Like, uh, that Sunday I stayed at home, Monday I stayed at home, so I don't know. 
No, it's it's not it's not the Rona, so that's good. No, 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 no Rona for Ryan. Uh, only yeah. bubonic plague. Only bubonic plague. But. Yeah, which was found, you know, in our city too. So yeah, it, it was weird. Yeah. So and you know, I mean that that just. It just makes it easier for Stephen Root to ask me, like, so how bad is Anton Chigurh? And I go, compared to what? Ran Frost? <laughs> right. Um, so, but yeah, it's um, it, it's it sucks because, you know, when you get something like that, you're like, motherfucker, do I have freaking coronavirus? <laughs> and then I was thinking, it's like, man, I don't know how I could even get exposed to it because I didn't go anywhere. And then, uh, you know, how it all played out. Um, like, I don't have body aches. I don't have chills. I don't have sore throat. I'm not coughing. But, I literally but, just had a fever, and so I don't know. I do uh, not know. Wait, so but you were were your hands shaken and were your knees weak? Could you not seem to stand on your own two feet? <laughs> you know, you're all shook up. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> But we're not here to talk about Elvis Presley, thank God. We're here to talk about Alfred Hitchcock and his collaboration with Ingrid Bergman. And I'm glad that you are in a well enough place to ch- chat about Ingrid Bergman with us because what's what I find interesting as we look into Ingrid Bergman's history um, is that obviously there is the Cary Grant connection because they made more than just the one film that we're going to talk about today within the three that we have lined up. Um, but her, her legend in Hollywood is pretty interesting. And you'd started doing a little bit of research prior to me telling you, Hey, let's, let's conclude your trilogy with, with Ingrid Bergman. So what, what is, what was your first, uh, uh, exposure to Ingrid Bergman, um, as a film goer? Oh, I mean, I think it's the same as everybody's. Our age is, um, Casablanca. I mean, Mm -hmm. when I was younger, my grandfather my parents were divorced. I'm sure I, I told this on your last. We, we get it. You're a child of divorce. <laughs> totally. Um, but my grandfather would watch us all the time and he loved old movies and, you know, Turner classic movies used to be, um, you know, a channel. And so did AMC it used to be American movie classics before yeah. they went all, you know, walking dead and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Before they became so... Mad Men network. <laughs> exactly. So I, I got exposed to uh, classic Hollywood really early, and I think that's where my love for movie comes. I, you know, it's something that nobody else in my family has. A lot of people think they're boring, like my brothers and things like that, but I, I don't think they appreciate the films. Um, yeah, so my first film with her uh, is um, was uh, Casablanca, and uh, she's everything about her is she's just a wonderful actress. And when I was, before I came on the show, I was reading about her and her working with Hitch and he thought she was absolutely perfect. Yeah. She, she was a consummate professional. Um, she always knew her lines. She knew how to, I mean, she's a great actress. Um, and I think these three films just prove how great of an actress she is because each film, she's someone different and, uh, she plays each part, differently but it's still her if that makes any sense yeah no it it still maintains her her personality and her charm and her allure are maintained not just through these three films but frankly throughout her entire career um the, the an important part of understanding the collaboration with hitch i feel 
also stems from going into Bergman's origin story, which is where we haven't really talked about the origin story of an actor um, within uh, Hitchcock's stable. But I think Bergman's is important because her, her story is very fascinating. And it also obviously where it winds up by the end of our conversation will be uh, um, uh, will lead into that. But she she was born in Stockholm, Sweden, um, and um, she started her career in Swedish and German films. Um, and she was in a 1936 film called Intermezzo, um, telling the story of a, uh, of a violinist played by, uh, in the original film, um, Gosta, uh, Gosta Ekman. I'm not Swedish guys, so I can't pronounce Swedish names. I'm very, very sorry. I'm, I'm an ignorant American, but, um, uh, but the, the Intermezzo was then picked up, um, as a concept to be remade in the U.S. Uh, in 1939, uh, directed by Gregory Radoff, starring Leslie Howard, and produced by an old, old, old friend who I love to make fun of um, uh, and uh, whose impression may appear again on this show. I speak, of course, of David O. You know what he did, Selznick. Um, <laughs> and um, this film was a... a, a pretty uh big hit for uh, for uh uh selznick not as big obviously as the other one that came out in 1939 you know the one i mean the the one where <laughs> the one we're having a very important and needed conversation about <laughs> these days but um uh but so yeah but that's basically how bergman is brought over here um so she is put under contract by selznick um and uh, she, she was basically expected to complete this film and then return home to Sweden. Um, and her husband, uh, Petter Lindstrom, uh, remained in Sweden with their daughter. Um, and then basically she's, she's just basically too hot of a commodity. They, she's kept in America <laughs> and Lindstrom joins her in America down the line. So, uh, it, within that time, she stars in a, a slew of films like the uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde um, with Spencer Tracy and Lana Turner. Um, but her big break uh, from 1939 into 1932 or in 1942, she basically being under contract to Selznick means that Selznick would not just put her in his films, but Selznick would loan people out like crazy. Hitchcock was no exception to this. Obviously, he was loaned out for films such as one we're going to talk about today, but also films like Saboteur, which we discussed last time, and Lifeboat. Um, but one of the one of the most legendary loanouts uh, that Selznick ever made to another studio was to Warner Brothers in 1942 uh, for Michael Curtiz's eternal classic and the sec the second best film ever made, Casablanca. Um, the uh, her role in the film uh, as Ilse Lund is uh, the stuff of legend, not just for the chemistry with Bogart, but also what she brings to the role as a tragic woman torn between two men and one toward patriotic duty and one toward love lost in Paris before the occupation. Um, so she's she she's already basically building up this legendary status before she even gets to Hitch. Um, and, uh, and, you know, she's in films like For Whom the Bell Tolls, 
um, afterward, and then Gaslight in 1944, a film that's become even more relevant today than it even was at the time, um, not just because of its title, but because of what happens in it. Um, and then, Great uh, movie. Uh, oh yeah, wonderful film, wonderful film. If you let, let me tell you something, Ryan. I know that your predilection towards French cinema is not um, always on the highest regard, but you cannot deny that Charles Boyer was not one of the sexiest Frenchmen to ever come down the pipeline. Well, <laughs> well he's, if he's in American films, it's cool. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Him and Maurice Chevalier, if they're both in. <laughs> um, and then also in that 1945 uh, she's in a film with Gary Cooper called Saratoga Trunk, which is a uh, pretty good film, but it was shot in 43, not released until 1945. And 1945 is what brings us to her collaborations with Hitchcock. Um, and essentially, we're going to be going through these chronologically and basically breaking down the collaborations that she had with Hitch. And where it starts with is that, you know, Hitchcock didn't even pick her initially for this first film we're going to talk about. Um, and what's amazing is that as this, as her, as their collaboration goes along, this is the second of what would become many instances where Hitchcock became obsessed with the star, but also uh, was basically trying to um, also innovate different things at the same time. So not only do we have one facet of Hitchcock that we've talked about at length, Obviously, we talked about the extent of its uh, prowess in something like Marnie and the consequences of that, um, but also his technical um, aspirations, um, things that would be coming that would come to fruition in something like Rope, uh, and then even arguably Rear Window. Um, and so the 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 whole journey that we're going to go on, Ryan, starts with uh, a little film about the mind called Spellbound. From 1945, um, directed by ha, me, me, I, I made a, I made a movie about the loony bin, um, and uh, produced by David O. Selznick. Me, I'm back, um, and uh, with a screenplay by Agnes, uh, Angus McPhail and Ben Hecht, uh, based on the novel The House of Doctor Edwards by Hilary St. George Saunders and Francis Beeding, uh, starring Ingrid Bergman, Gregory Peck, Michael Chekhov. Uh, Leo G. Carroll, Rhonda Fleming, John Emery, Bill Goodwin, uh, Stephen Gray, Donald Curtis, Wallace Ford, Art Baker, Regis Toomey, and Paul Harvey. Um, with, of course, you can't have a Hitchcock movie in the 40s without trying to get Norman Lloyd in there somewhere, and he is in this movie. Norman Lloyd, obviously, the last time Ryan and I talked about him, he was dangling off the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> so um, yeah. uh, so now he finds himself as a, a patient, Mr. Garms, in this movie. Um, and uh, so with the production of Spellbound, it's, it's, quite, it's, it's quite interesting how this all came about. So... This actually connects back to our previous episode. Much like a Star Wars um, uh, trilogy, Ryan, our our story has connections as well. Our our journey through Hitchcock, um, and ours actually has to go back uh, to the to the uh, film that Hitchcock made with Sidney Bernstein overseas um, called German Concentration Caps Factual Survey, um, where Hitchcock, prior to going over to help out with that, had met with Bernstein overseas. And they're, um, they had known each other prior in the British Gamma period. They reconnected, and they were wanting to work together and form what would become Transatlantic Pictures. On his way back to America, Hitchcock searched around for um, the property that he would want to adapt next, and he found the book, The House of Dr. Edwards. 
flipped through it, and he goes, ooh, ooh, this sounds fun. Then he got back to America, slapped the book down on Selznick's desk, and said, read this shit, because this sounds fucking cool. And um, Selznick also thought it was fucking cool, because... Uh, if you'll, um, uh, for more information on this, please, as always, listen to the Secret History of Hollywood, which will um, feature the dulcet tones of Adam Roach, who will be our final guest on this show. Um, but Selznick was in uh, deep analysis at the time, in deep therapy, um, not unlike a, another Hitchcock subject um, and collaborator, Joseph Stefano, who would gladly talk about that on um, uh, on the behind the scenes featurettes. And Selznick was very adamant about making this movie. He was very, very adamant that this movie be made. And um, it was uh, it was also kind of made over a contract disagreement um, uh, with uh, Selznick. But the bottom line is, is that this was something where it seemed like the collaboration between him and Selznick was going to be more or less more positive. Now, as we learn with anything involving David O. Selznick... You cannot expect a smooth production at any form or stretch. Um, but what Selznick does bring to the table is he wants to cast Ingrid Bergman uh, in the lead role, and he wants Gregory Peck um, as our leading man. Um, uh, and so uh, basically Bergman doesn't want to do this movie. She finds the whole story to be rather ridiculous. Um, and uh, she got called in to Selznick's office and Selznick proceeded to essentially rant and rave about the importance of psychological representation and the, and the workings of the mind to a point where Bergman was going to basically say yes to anything after that talk, either because it was so long or because it was, she was convinced. I don't know the exact answer on this, but I imagine David O. Selznick going into a bit of a rant would make anybody go like, I'll say, I'll do anything you want. Just please stop talking. It's kind of like how people talk to me. And that's how I get them on this podcast. Um, um, so, um, so yeah, and, and that kind of brings us into this film, which the, the, the biggest collaborative effort that Hitchcock would have with on this film, other than Bergman was also Salvador Dali. Uh, Salvador Dali, a surrealist and uh, 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 a failed uh, Marx Brothers film writer, <laughs> has been discovered over the past decades, um, conceived a lot of the key dream sequences for this film that would later be uh, basically scissored to about a five-minute seg segment in the film. Uh, but there was originally 20 minutes worth of these dream sequences. Now, I don't know... How uh, we'll talk about it and how you feel about the dream sequences, but like, could you imagine twenty minutes of what you saw, maybe five minutes of in Spellbound? <laughs> um, and so, um, we'll, we'll we'll go through the plot a little bit of uh, Spellbound, um, just to kind of basically jump through in and out because I think it does establish what Hitchcock's able to do with Bergman and makes her she may he makes her a very resourceful. Um, heroin in the film in a way that I don't think uh, um, uh, Bergman had been allowed to be at the time. It feels like even, even in Casablanca, she's not really the heroine. She's more of the caught in between character and it's more bogey and Claude Rains kind of um, kind of having their whole debate about like the, 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 the morality of war and also their, what side to take in Casablanca. Um, 
But when did so Ryan when you watched this film for the first time, which was not for this show, you have seen this before. Um, what was your impression of this then interpretation of psycho psychology and psychoanalysis? Um, you know, it's interesting. The Bergman's performance makes it pretty fun. She's uh, she's really confident in her performance. Uh, you know, I don't know how many films at this time had female doctors in it and not only that but also ones that are really strong and have their own uh they like they don't need really the man Mm -hmm. uh she happens just to fall for the man because she's perfectly fine by herself right and uh yeah so it's it's an interesting take i mean there's some things in that that haven't aged well when she talks to um uh, her mentor, and he says, well, you know how women are when they're in love. They make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> you know, or, or I forget the exact wording of the line. Yeah, but... no, 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 no. Yeah, that's, uh, that is definitely a a, a a basic breakdown that has been, uh, that that is part of that film. And, and now, it would be easy for us, essentially, from looking, you know, over close to 80 years down the line and say, like, well, that's outdated and whatnot. Now, Obviously, we've talked about more of the outdated stuff in Hitchcock films before, but what's interesting about Spellbound is is that psychoanalysis at all is barely being touched on in film at this time. This film was a big—I'm going to kind of skip ahead and say that this film was a huge, massive hit. By the end of 1947, it had made over $6 million in the box office out of $1.5 million budget. It was the second highest-grossing film um, one of one of the highest grossing films of 1945, uh, and became a big pop culture well-to-do within radio uh, shows of the era, referencing Spellbound, uh, primarily comedy shows, but also like, you know, just the the intrigue of psychoanalysis had definitely permeated the culture at the time. Um, so while the film, while the film does not uh, obviously hold up. By today's standards, as we've discussed with other Hitchcock films where the psychoanalysis is obviously outdated, this one's, uh, unlike a psycho or even a frenzy, this this is a film that's primarily focused on more so a patient from a more sympathetic point of view. And so as a result, it treats psychoanalysis which with much more meticulousness and attention to detail. Whereas in Psycho, it's kind of glossed over in that great monologue at the end uh, when they're all going like, nah, Norman Bates was his mother. So, you know, like this this film obviously goes way, way deeper into it. And a lot of that probably can be attributed to Selznick, who, because he was in therapy at the time, was very adamant about, you know, like presenting it properly on screen, Um, whether or not Selznick took it too far over the line with his insistence on notes and memos to Hitchcock is a whole other story entirely. Um, and, and, and as I've discussed before, Hitchcock and Selznick, they, they, they had their battles on the many, um, but they did respect each other. Obviously when I did the episode with uh, James on Rebecca, I leaned into a big Selznick impression that was less than kind. But the truth is, is that they two, they did, the two did respect each other and uh, it, and so much so that there is a fun story, Ryan. I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, as they were getting ready to gear up on production, you know, normally when you're making a film based on a book of any kind, you have to contact the author of the book for the rights or the publishers, et cetera, right? So 
uh, Selznick, obviously, in his frantic state of you know preparing and securing everything, uh, was working to secure the rights to doc- the house of Doctor Edwards. The uh, the the tricky part was the tricky part was that the rights had already been bought. Guess who they had been bought by? I don't know. Me. I bought them. I bought them to get them. So there's a phone call that basically Selznick makes and just goes like, I can't get the rights. And he goes, oh, I know why you can't get them, David. I know why you can't get them because I got them. And basically Selznick was just like, well, let's sell them back to me. And uh, this is, uh, you know, basically Hitchcock goes like, sure, David, why not? (laughs) You know, like, so basically Hitchcock kind of like, I think obviously Hitchcock wanted to, it seems like he wanted to assert a little bit more control over his working with Selznick, if at all. Um, because obviously the experience he had with Rebecca was not, um, uh, a fond one for him by comparison to, other collaborations with Selznick where the the waters would be a lot less uh, turbulent, although that didn't stop turbulence from happening. Um, Selznick's interference with productions on both Spellbound and the next film we'll talk about, Notorious, were so bad that basically if Selznick came on to set, uh, the, the camera would mysteriously stop working. And uh, they would be an attempt to fix it. And, you know, you have Hitchcock going like, look, I'm, I'm sorry, David. I have no idea why the camera broke all of a sudden. But <laughs> I, I, I'm sure it'll be fixed in no time. And then Selznick would just wait around long enough to go. He's like, I've got to go. I've got to go do shit. Um, and then he'd leave. And then, then the camera would just uh, magically work again. So, obviously, there was a lot of attempts by Hitchcock to um, lessen the interference uh, of one of Selznick. Um but I, I to to dig further into the film itself, um, you know, despite in spite of the psychoanalysis efforts of it all, we also are attempting to kind of push cinematic boundaries with this, and I think a lot of this has to do with not just Bergman, but also what he's doing with the camera, because those dolly sequences, as much as we get of them, are mind bending for the era. I don't think there's anything you can really compare it to during the time on a mainstream Hollywood scale where you have this much surrealism and bizarreness flowing through the film. What's interesting is that it actually fits in the film. It doesn't distract from it. Um, And uh, I think ultimately we are left with on Spellbound this like this interesting above melodrama dive into psychoanalysis that the the whole the whole notion of it being uh you know a, an attempt to figure out to dig into the to the probing the probing a man's mind to try to discover the truth behind a death is obviously one that we see years later in many many films we obviously you know go so far into probing people's minds that we had Leonardo DiCaprio trying to steal stuff inside of them years down the line um but um you know, one one element of this film that it doesn't work just with Bergman, it also requires one Gregory Peck. Um, and Gregory Peck, it, this is one of his earliest roles, and man, I, he crushes it in this film. I, I Were you surprised when you first saw this film to see Gregory Peck look that lean? Because I'm not used to Gregory Peck looking that lean. You know, it's interesting, too. I um, when I'm When I watch Hitch movies, I always try to envision uh, – if Cary Grant would be in that movie, 
you know, um, <laughs> because uh, Cary Grant was so popular with Hitchcock and uh, Grant loved working with Hitchcock. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the ones where I could never see him do it because uh, Gregory Prack is really great in it and he's really vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of a Cary Grant film where he's that vulnerable. You know, Cary Grant usually is really sure of himself, uh, very confident. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and... It, there, there needs to be a sensitivity to play the amnesic. Is that a word? Yeah, yeah, amnesiac, yeah, the amnesiac, yeah, guy, and he plays it so well, and you, what what I love, too, is you actually buy uh, Dr. Constance kind of falling in love with him, because as she explores his traumatized youth, Mm -hmm. more and more, he reveals more of himself to her, Yeah. yeah, and what I did like about this film, too, is they didn't rush into, I love you right away. You know, it's it, it, she. It, un- it. Sorry, she unlocked something in him, and he didn't want to hurt her, so he kind of tries to hide from her. Yeah, yeah. And she and she comes across as, hey, you know, no, I'm actually trying to help you as a doctor. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, there's some, you know, the there's some trademark hitch stuff when they're trying to escape on the train where they zoom in on the eyes and. The, the music gets really bombastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The music, by the way, done by um, Mik- Miklos uh, Rosa, who also used theremins throughout this production and to cr- to double down on that eerie atmosphere that, that permeates this film. Like, this film doesn't just feel um, uh, out there and of the mind uh, for the time of 1945. It also feels that way. So it's not just looking that way with the Dolly imagery. It feels that way, that the atmosphere in this film is specifically designed to un- to unsettle you, not in a way, not in a, not in a typical Hitchcock way. I think it's more or less, it, it creates a mood where nothing fully feels like it's planted on the ground. Like it, it, it always feels like it kind of, uh, thing anything can happen in this film in a way where some Hitchcock films are set up where the logic is pretty clear. This one, the logic kind of like goes out the door a little bit, and it, and it and it's to the benefit of the film because you get this overall feel of that like something's gonna turn at any point, especially given the fact that um, Edwards, as he is claiming to be, really he is John Ballantine, um. Anytime he is triggered and is about to com- uh, commit an act of violence, like the 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 world just unends and shifts, and the and visually it's captured that way as well. But also like when he's grabbing the razor, um, when he when they're uh, holed up in the um, in her mentor's uh, house, you know it's it's chilling, it's bone chilling, and the music complements that, the visuals complement that. We're set in this world where we don't uh, – if we're an audience in 1945, we don't understand psychology the way uh, obviously a doctor would, but also like on the mainstream level, we're not fully in touch with it. You know, back in that day, you hid your feelings and punched them out. But it, but now, obviously, we don't do that as much, I, and the key phrase is as much. Um, but uh, so, so there's like a, a – there's a feeling of uncharted territory that kind of permeates it. I think Gregory Peck's a big part of why that works. Because it's hard to see this nice-looking young man become this monster that he can become in the movie. Um, and obviously the film uh, 
because it's adapted from a book, things are changed around and shifted. But I think you still manage to hold a lot of the menace in this film, regardless of how the ending wraps everything up. Um, it's This is a situation we've run into with many films we've discussed, Ryan, where the ending wraps itself up out of uh, sort of out of convenience. Um, but yeah, you know, I always thought it was weird, too, uh, when she's analyzing him and then he realizes he didn't you know, kill anybody except for his brother. (laughs) (laughs) And he's all happy that it was an accident when he like slid down the side of a staircase and kicked him into a iron like arrow. Yeah. No, it's, (laughs) it's, 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 I will say Ryan, we, we, we're both horror fans. We're big fans of horror. Um, you're a little bit more, um, uh, experienced with some of the out there and more outlandish gore fests than I am per se, um, since I tend to go more toward the the black and white era of it all. But um, the the death of his brother in this movie is a- on level with a Jason kill. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's so sort of over the top. top. It's because like and for for those who don't know what we're talking about, I will spoil Spellbound a little bit. The 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 story has up to this point basically been Bergman trying to clear Gregory Peck of the uh, the murder of the actual Doctor Edwards, and as it's revealed, is that like he does not he's so disturbed, but he's not disturbed because he killed Doctor Edwards. He's been disturbed for years because he repressed the memory where he killed his younger brother by shoving him down the ban the 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 uh, banister of st- uh, of a flight of stairs. And the brother then lands on a fucking fence pike. <laughs> yeah, he gets impaled. Impaled. That, straight up vampirism. I, I try not to laugh, but every time I see that scene, I, I forget about it. Mm-hmm. And then I see it, and I laugh. Yeah. Now, and, and this is not us making fun of it. It's just when you watch it within the context of modern viewing, it looks outlandish. It's not, it's not that it looks funny. You're just kind of taken aback going like, wow, they did that? And then Hitchcock, you know, speaks from the grave and goes like, yeah, Jason's not the only one who can impale shit. I can impale people. <laughs> look, look at me. You, you hit, Look, Scream Factory's doing a box set of these Friday movies. Spellbound should just be stuck in there as like the earliest Jason movie. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, and then because it, because it has that ending, it does also, because obviously it wraps up, you know, uh, Ballantine's um, uh, story in it and clears him of guilt. We are given at the end a very, very poignant um, uh, uh, piece of imagery from Hitchcock that has been kind of uh, has slowly been discovered over time as its own form of uh, psycho uh, uh, of psychoanalytic uh, psychoanalytical filmmaking. So in the end, um, it's revealed that the former head of the um, of the hospital that uh, Ballantyne would then go over to assume the leadership of uh, was basically uh, basically killed Edwards in an attempt to cover up uh, to get back for basically replacing him as head of the hospital. Uh, Bergman confronts him, and Bergman basically talks him into shooting himself at the end of the film in a POV scene that. They had to construct a giant hand to do certain elements of the shot where the gun turns and shoots um, shoots itself in the face, um, 
which I I mean you you have the Blu-ray so you've seen the special features where you see the giant hand and stuff. Um, but what's interesting is is that in the film, as the shot goes off, Hitchcock decided to basically insert a frame of red in the middle of the shot after the gun goes off. So as the hand turns, the gun goes off, and you if you're if you are uh, skipping through frames on your Blu-ray player, you will see a frame of red in there. Um, which is something that hadn't really been fully discovered until years later by other people as they were interviewing Hitchcock for his legacy and dissecting his films. Um, and he, you know, fully, you know, fessed up to just like, yeah, this is, this is me. I, uh, I, I, I did that. I, I kind of wanted to throw you all for a little bit of a loop there. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but it's interesting to note that like in this black and white film, we have, um, uh, basically, a little form of uh, psych- psychology being twisted and played with by Hitch himself to play with our perceptions of how violence is perceived by us, the viewing audience. So it can't be overstated that this film is uh, a-, a very, very important film, not just from the el- realm of psychoanalysis that we talked about, but it also establishes Bergman's ability in Hitchcock's realm. Um, Bergman not just floors it when it comes to the heroism that she portrays in this film and the struggling, like the the harrowing thing she has to go through, but she also gets to make something like liverwurst sexy in one of the greatest lines in this film where they are talking about what sandwich they would rather have. And she says liverwurst and it's, it's, it's Hitchcock's food. That's his, that's his big food thing in this movie. And I, I, I don't think you can ever do that anymore. You can't do that. You can't make liverwurst sexy, Ryan. Like, I mean, well, on the mainstream, you can do it in other places, but those are places we're not talking about on this show. (laughs) So, um, but the movie is released. It's a big, big hit. This film is referenced all across the board in uh, different pop culture uh, items of the era, not the least of which there's many instances in um, the 45 run of the Jack Benny program where you have people like Frank Nelson going um, like, well, who do you think I am with this razor in my hand? The star of Spellbound? So you have the, it, it really captured the imagination of people and really opened up that that door of psychoanalysis to the mainstream movie going public. Um, the film obviously made a massive amount of money, um, and, but it had, uh, you know, its reception was pretty, pretty well praised. My favorite guy to hate, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, wrote that the story is a rather obvious and often told tale, but the manner of its, uh, manner and quality of its telling is extraordinarily fine. The firm texture of the narration, the flow of continuity and dialogue, the shock of the unexpected, the scope of image are all happily here. So Bosley Crowther naturally had to start with a pithy remark, but then go into how much he loved it. Um, but um, And Variety uh, wrote that Bergman gave a beautiful characterization and that Peck handles the suspense scenes with great skill and has one of his finest screen roles to date. I find that review interesting because there is a note that Hitchcock was rather uh, uh, unimpressed with Gregory Peck's ability to use facial expressions, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, you know, we, we've watched our fair share of Gregory Peck films over the years. He is a very stoic figure, and so it's, oh, yeah. it's very hard to imagine him 
breaking down to let's say like Daniel Day Lewis level of emotion, but um, but he but he, that persona is obviously what carries him to be as powerful as he is as like Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. Like you you can't uh, deny the uh, the amount of power he brings to a role like that or whether he's tap dancing in a vaudeville routine with Jack Benny in the 70s like he his his presence but it basically kind of defines him but it also is the reason we would want him around for any of the roles we've set him up in post spellbound um the film is nominated for a slew of academy awards nominated for best picture oselznik best director best supporting actor michael chekhov who plays bergman's mentor fun fact Chekhov was also Bergman's mentor in real life for acting, and this would end up being his only nomination uh, uh, in film history. And Best Cinematography, Best Original Score, which it won for Mikos Rosa, um, and Best Visual Effects, Jack Cosgrove, which I feel like the Best Special Effects should also be shared with Salvador Dali, but I'm sure Salvador Dali was too busy painting a picture that looks great to me, but I can't understand because I'm an idiot. Um, and, uh, and she also, uh, Bergman also won the best, uh, actress award at the New York Fil- film critics circle. Uh, and at this time, Hitchcock has basically become enamored with Bergman. He has, um, started to form that obsessive quality again that he would have with several actresses. This also kind of began early on with, um, his assistant, Joan Harrison, um, who, you know, obviously Joan Harrison kind of more held her own and uh, would end up becoming uh, a successful producer in her, her own right and end up kind of running the Alfred Hitchcock Presents thing. But this is kind of the second phase of Hitchcock's obsession with an actress where the the, the lines between the art he's making and the reality start to t- start to bend and twist a little bit in a, in a weird fashion. Um, and almost immediately after Spellbound is released and is receiving these accolades, Hitchcock begins work on uh, a little film that we talked about at the very beginning of this series uh, called Notorious. Um, and much like The Empire Strikes Back is considered the uh, finest in the original Star Wars trilogy, um, Notorious will be the finest one because we have to uh, talk about now Cary Grant. So, you know... Um, and uh, so Notorious is a film that we talked about in brief uh, last time. I thought it would be good to talk about this a little bit further if possible because um, uh, the the uh, the amount that Bergman as a character is allowed to do in this film extends even beyond Spellbound because she's a heroine, but she's also al- allowed to basically stretch every dramatic muscle she's ever possessed. She doesn't even get to do that in Spellbound. Spellbound, she's kind of uh, limited to the role of, well, I've got to help this man. Here, she's not only caught between two men, she's not only having to save the world, um, but she's also being slowly poisoned in a gothic romance fashion. Um, I, I, did you? I, so when you when you first saw Notorious, which was back early on before you started the Grant series, Ryan. Um, was, was it, was your, uh, was this like the, one of the few Ingrid Bergman films you had seen up to this point or was it mainly Casablanca and then a big gap until something like this? Yeah. I mean, um, I've always been a big fan of Notorious. Uh, I think Notorious is one of Hitchcock's best movies and yeah, it's just, it's always been a personal favorite. 
Um, I, I've had the DVD. I had the original Blu-ray. And then I was stoked when it was put on Criterion. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. it's, it's one of those films that, uh, you know, Cary Grant's not that nice in this movie. He's, um, he's trying to get a job done. He's still dashing and charming. But, you know, he is uh, also trying to hunt Nazis. And he's kind of, um, you know, he's kind of an ass to Alicia for a little bit because he's he's trying to get the job done and he's trying not to get too close to her. I mean, um, he has I mean, one of his most iconic lines ever is a really mean line in this where he says, uh, dry your eyes, baby. It's out of character. (laughs) You know, it's. uh, Yeah, it's it's a. It's a fantastic piece. <laughs> um, you get an early person obsessed with their mom, with Claude Rains, and uh, which is a, a theme in Hitchcock films. Oh, funny you should bring that up. I mean, we'll go into a little bit of more production info than we were able to last time, but I will point out that yeah, we we did. We'll, we'll bring it back to the original discussion where we talked about the mother issues initially. Uh, Sebastian played brilliantly by Claude Invisible Man Rains um, or Claude um, Louis Rains. Uh, he, uh, his, his, the character of his mom is very much an early precursor to something like a Norman, uh, to a Norma Bates, uh, except she's allowed to move and speak and Norma Bates was not, uh, for obvious reasons. But, um, there's elements like when Sebastian is like at the foot of her bed, um, apparently this was drawn a lot from Hitch's childhood where his mom would make him stand at the foot of her bed and either to punish him or to have him recount his day to her. Um, so there's obviously Hitchcock had his obviously Hitchcock had his issues with women and not the least what she did have, you know, some other issues that obviously found their way into into his films. And, you know, it makes Sebastian all the more uh, an interesting counterpart to Hitch and what and what he's drawing on to insert from his own life in there that diametrically uh, works in opposition to full effect where Cary Grant is the man that Hitch would idolize and want to be. So we're basically kind of back to that, to that initial notion we began at this series of like the, you know, Cary Grant is the ideal man and Sebastian is more or less what Hitchcock uh, can more relate, grasp onto on a f- ground, f- uh, on a footed ground. Um, it's not to overanalyze it, but it is fascinating to look at how, notorious portrays that and caught in the middle is somebody like Bergman where both sides of the psyche are attracted to this woman. Um, and you know, the character of Alicia, I find, I I find it eternally fascinating how her character starts as this, like she's, she's very much an alcoholic who's basically round rounded out her grief from the fact that her father was convicted uh, under espionage and, is basically just lost it and the and the thing that really props her up in this movie is the idea of redemption. So she gets to play with not just, you know, obviously falling in love with Grant, but she really does get to stretch that mold of just like she feels a dishonor that she has to correct in her in her lineage and for her own uh for her own soul. And so when we see what happens to her throughout this film at the hands of Sebastian, 
it becomes one of those like I'd argue in a weird way. I'm a big fan of Casablanca, but I think Bergman's better in this movie than she is in Casablanca. I mean, her she has a couple uh, breakout uh, scenes. You know, there's one uh, where her and Devlin go back and forth where he's trying to be mean to her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's uh, how's the line go? He says uh, um, something like, uh, I remember you saying you're a new woman. Daisies and buttercups. Wasn't it something like that? <laughs> and uh, she's like, you know, she's basically screaming at him saying, you knew what I was doing. You love me and you won't even admit it. And it's such a, a great moment because Devlin as a character, he's trying to, you know, do his, spy job but he is falling in love with her and uh and she's basically calling him out for letting her fall in love with sebastian yeah yeah and uh you know it's 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 a great scene and uh you know i think about another scene with her where um she's fudge i can't read I should have rewatched this before we started, but I, I've watched it so much. Um, the she's uh, she says something like, "Do you do you love me, Commodore?" And he says, uh, "You're a very beautiful woman." And uh, she, her response to that is, "I I need another drink to appreciate that." <laughs> but, uh, things like that, where she is so confident, and but she's also damaged because of her alcoholism because Devlin also exploits her for being a Nazi uh, sympathizer because of her dad. And uh, it, it's really fascinating. And I, I, I read that Ingrid Bergman in her personal life didn't think much of the Nazis when it was happening. And it's one of her, you know, things she really always felt bad about where she thought they were just going to go away. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so it's interesting that she's playing a daughter of a Nazi sympathizer that uh, is kind of put in this world of espionage where she doesn't want to, but she has this obligation because of who her father was. Yeah. yeah. And she wants to right a wrong that it's not her fault, but Devlin exploits her for it. And like I said, he's really mean to her and it's uh it's a tour de force <laughs> and it's, it's maybe one of the darker roles that Cary Grant's ever done. Um, he, he kind of wavers on that in most of Hitchcock stuff. I think uh, only maybe North by Northwest is his only Hitchcock film where he's kind of Cary Grant in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's Suspicion, Notorious, you know, he kind of plays a darker dude, you know. he uh, And in this one, he's like... This movie is classic cool. He's really cool in the movie. Um, hey, that's the name of an article series you did. Yeah, I mean, I mean, no, check it out. No, no shameless plug here. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I love this movie. You know, and uh, that that line, "Dry your eyes, baby, it's out of character," is delivered with such coldness, and the way that Hitch sh- shoots and lights it, where he slowly kind of turns and says it to her, is just so cold blooded. That um, and her reaction to the heartbreak of him talking to her that way is pretty palpable. Yeah, and this is like notorious to me has this big. 
this element of Hitchcock at the top of his game in the 40s specifically, because obviously there are many moments throughout Hitchcock where he's at the top of his game where he's just like, I'm on top of the fucking world. And this one in particular, he is definitely coming off of the high of Spellbound and really doubling down on certain elements of his stock and trade for storytelling and also just seeing what more he can push, not the least of which is that makeout scene that lasts for a solid three minutes. Like, that might be the sexiest thing in golden age Hollywood history, hands down. Like that scene in particular is you, you cannot uh, deny one, the power of Cary Grant smooching you for that long, I guess. Um, or, you know, on the flip side, you know, the allure of getting to make out with Ingrid Bergman for three minutes, but just the fact that he's holding on that image for so long, like he doesn't do it again that way. Like it, when it comes to a, a love scene like that, like even in a love scene with something like North by Northwest, he'll cut away pretty quick. Like he doesn't like, obviously he cut away to a train at the end, but, you know, like, yeah. um, but in this one in particular, he is really doubling down on the romance that is in spellbound, but is not uh, the primary purpose of spellbound in, in notorious. I think that the romance is 10 times more important as well. Um, which also kind of lends to my my opinion that Bergman is this is one of this is, she's better in this than she's in, in Casablanca because she in Casablanca she does not have the same amount of agency that she does in this movie even though at a certain point her agency is removed because of Sebastian's actions uh, in slowly poisoning her um, but but the fact that she carries as much weight that she does in this movie is astounding especially for the period. Um, and Notorious, as a film, was originally set up as a David O. Selznick production. Uh, so this was obviously going to be yet another like moment where Selznick could promote the heck out of the fact that he has Ingrid Bergman under contract. Um, but he was in such massive debt that he uh, basically handed this property over to RKO in exchange for a hefty sum and 50% of the profits. But that didn't stop Selznick from giving constant notes like crazy, and that's always when the camera would stop. Um, there were memos sent uh, that were I found very interesting as I did more research into it, um, am amongst which was like a proposed rewrite by Clifford Odets, a noted playwright. But the other one, Ryan, which you will hate the most, I, I, I predict an eternal hate for Selznick because of this, he wanted to replace Cary Grant with Joseph Cotton. That's now, just now, ridiculous. Now, see, listeners of the Shamley Silhouette, there's there's a couple of reasons why this would upset Mr. Ryan Frost. Number one, you don't replace Cary Grant. You just don't do it. Uh, either Cary Grant replaces himself or he uh, or you just uh, make a different kind of movie because you're just not going to you know, you're not going to top it. But two, Joseph Cotton, not only under contract to Selznick, but also notorious for his association with that other fat director. You know who I mean. <laughs> um, and Ryan, while not as Orson Welles hater, <laughs> has his thoughts on Citizen Kane. <laughs> uh, hate's a strong word. Yeah, no, um, you, yeah. Know, you, you know, you don't hate the movie. It's, he's, he's okay. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, um, and I, and I bring that up primarily though, because Joseph Cotton will be coming back up in the conversation here in a little bit. But it is interesting to note that, like, I, this was a situation where I stopped and wondered, could Joseph Cotton have done the role? Now, obviously, with Grant in the role, there's no real actual <laughs> reason to give that any credence. 
But if I were to for a moment, coming off of a movie like Shadow of, of a Doubt with Joseph Cotton in the role of Uncle Charlie, I could see Cotton towing the line the way Grant has to do it. I think the difference is, is that the charm would not be there, obviously. But I think also it would be very hard. You would have to lighten up Cotton a lot. Like, you would have to really lower his intensity in a way that I think Cotton's biggest strength is his intensity. Um, So I think that as a result, obviously Hitchcock saw this memo and went, well, that's fucking ridiculous, and then just tossed it. Um, And, you know, and, and and it's for the better because this pairing of Bergman and Grant is so iconic. It, it's it's a reason like why a movie like Indiscreet gets made years later, because that pairing is proven. You know, like mm-hmm. their chemistry is palpable. Um, like you believe not just because there's three minutes of them making out and Hitchcock going like more kissing, um, but there's uh, there's an element of just like those two like where I'm just like man like I could see them together. You know, like it, it it's it's that impression we have. Throughout all the great couples, whether it's, you know, the ones of more recent note like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie or I guess Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. I don't know if that's too strong a stretch, Um, but um, but yeah, so like you can you can definitely see that that chemistry permeate throughout it. And this was this was also a, a project where Hitchcock was willing to take a lot of Bergman's suggestions for her interpretation of the character so this is also another example of hitchcock because he is getting along with the actor and also you know the the obsession is growing a little bit within him um and kind of molding his version of bergman for his films you know he is very much in into the collaborative effort working with bergman on this film and really trying to capture the the elements of Alicia is a character that make her one of the best on-screen heroines of the 40s, I'd argue. Um, and as far as as far as Notorious is concerned, you know, we, we've talked a little bit. We talked a lot more about it in the uh, in the first episode in regards to like certain elements that were not allowed, like the the bomb, uh, the 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 fact that it was a an atomic bomb had to be really toned down because like shh, Russia doesn't know we have shit yet. Um, but uh, but also the uh the certain elements of like well how ca- how can this ending play out you know what will happen the ambiguity of sebastian's end which i think sebastian's end is still one of the most haunting last images in a hitchcock movie you will ever see is just him walking back into the house it's it's just absolutely astounding um and this movie as we've discussed before was a big big hit um, it was like the second biggest hit of 1946. The the legacy of this film is so much as such. It's one of the primest examples of a Hitchcock film that anybody can present. Um, I've talked about how Rear Window is the epitome of Hitchcock's technique and style. Uh, and then like Psycho is like the, the delivery of that bombacity and that showmanship. And Notorious, I think, is the is the one that is able to hit all the beats in a way that people remember fondly, um, whether it is, you know, the romance, the intrigue, the espionage, the imagery, the MacGuffin, all the all the elements are there and playing without any real weak, weak link in the movie. There's not a um, there's not a moment in this film that drags, I would argue. Oh, no, I think everybody in this film is at the top of their game. Yeah. And acting, it, directing. Yeah. 
everything. And, and Ben Hecht as a as a you know established Hitchcock writer. Um, Hecht is a, a figure that we haven't talked about much apart from his association just with Hitchcock, but this is a guy who you know was. Uh, he he was the co-author of the front page, which would end up becoming the Grant film His Girl Friday. Um, he uh, received an Oscar for best story for the movie Underworld in 1927. Uh, he provided a lot of the ideas that would end up going into a movie like Stagecoach. Um, so th- th- there's not a th- there's not a weak link in this film. Not even No Selznick. Not even Selznick. As much as I make fun of him and. You know, like the the bottom line is, is that like he his his suggestions were there, and obviously Hitchcock went like, no, David, no, we're not fucking doing those things. I'm tired of. You need to stop doing drugs, David. You really need to stop doing drugs. It's drugs are bad. Okay, um, that's a that's a reference to something that'll happen in the '90s. Um, but he doesn't really have much to. Um, really shove into this film in terms of a, a true interference. Cause like for the most part, Hitchcock is able to get away with what he wants on this film. And uh, it's all to the benefit of us as film goers, as we watch this film time and time again, obviously the response to this film was massive when it came out. Uh, it was an official selection at the Cannes film festival, uh, had its premiere at radio city music hall made 4.8 million in theatrical returns um and it was it, it earned RKO a profit which seems unheard of because RKO was not in, <laughs> at this time was coming off of the um was still kind of recovering from the collaboration that they had established with a boy genius a boy genius um <laughs> uh so and actually the films like this also kind of led to um uh, them kind of basically moving more toward the suspense realm because you also have Val Luton starting to emerge at their studio at the time. So this all this all kind of plays heavily into the uh, uh, into the way RKO would proceed for the next couple of years, and then also how it would unfortunately collapse as well. Um, and obviously, this film, uh, much like uh, uh, Spellbound, uh, Bergman's. Uh, being awarded for this film is kind of is very limited to nothing and like Claude Rains is the one that comes out with an Oscar nomination for this movie and Ben Hecht as well for writing but you know no Grant as we've discussed that's a travesty that will continue to be a travesty until time travel is invented um and uh well yeah well you know back then uh people didn't well the audiences loved Cary Grant but the suits in Hollywood didn't like him because he refused to sign an exclusive contract. Yeah. yeah. And he he would make any movie he wanted to because he found out after his contract ended with Paramount that, you know, he was making seven films a year and he didn't want to do that anymore. And he says, no, I'm going to pick the best movies and I'm going to do what I want to do. And so he kind of got blackballed. It was really interesting. Yeah, no. And, and, and as we've discussed, and as we discussed in the first episode that you were on, you know, Grant is also a person who eventually becomes disenchanted with Hollywood altogether, and and the role he played in it because he's, you know, he's 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 getting older and he kind of wants to do other things. You know, obviously he had other outside business interests, and in, you know, he's interested in becoming a father at a certain point. So you know, like Hollywood did not own Cary Grant in the way that I think that other actors felt a little bit more under the boot of, uh, arguably. 
Um, and and with Bergman, what's interesting is that Bergman would end up becoming disenchanted with Hollywood, um, as we're going to talk about here in a little bit, um, but for very different reasons, and ones that I think um, are are pointed from a modern perspective. But before we can talk about that that element of it, and also how Hitchcock plays into it as well. Um, we have to do a little bit of time jumping. Now, around this time in 1946, after Notorious comes out, Hitchcock goes one more film to David, uh, and, that, and it ended up being the Paradine case, uh, which reteamed Hitchcock with Gregory Peck. Um, and the films, in the film, we, we'll discuss it on a Shamley Supplements episode because I do want to wrap up the story of Selznick in some way, but Selznick's story is not is important to Hitch, but their ending of it is not as important to Hitchcock's legacy. Apart from what would become the formation of Transatlantic Pictures, uh, Transatlantic Pictures, as we've discussed, was the formation. It was a company formed by Hitchcock and uh, Sidney Bernstein, following their collaboration on the their work during the Second World War. Uh, they set up the company. They secured a distribution deal with Warner Brothers Pictures. Uh, to release the films um, in the mass distribution format. Um, the first of these films was Rope. Uh, it was a film that featured many long takes and starred a guy who hasn't been appearing in episodes lately. I wonder why. It's almost as if everybody forgot about the Jimster. <laughs> but um, uh, sorry, Jimmy, you're not going to be an under Capricorn. Well, fuck you, Hitch. I'm going to I'm going to go off and make a I'm, I'm going to go off. You know what I'm going to do, Hitch? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go off and make Westerns with Anthony Mann. And then you're going to beg me to come back. You're going to fucking beg me to come back. Um, <laughs> and he did. Well, that's not the actual story, but I, I'm for the purposes of this <laughs> little skit, because I want to bring Jimmy Stewart back as often as I can before he goes away. Um but uh, no, so Rope is the first under the transatlantic deal. Uh, the second is a film called Under Capricorn, um, based off of a novel by Helen Simpson. Uh, and it's a film that you had – now, Ryan, you had not seen this prior to us talking about this uh, uh, subject of Ingrid Bergman, correct? I have, I have not. I, I got it because um, you mentioned that you wanted to do – this, I don't know, a couple months ago when you were lining up, you know, your schedule. Yeah. And I happened, Kino Lobor had a huge sale where their Blu-rays were like six, seven bucks. Mm -hmm. And uh, Under Capricorn was one of them. Yeah. So I was yeah. like, you know what? I'll get it. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? You know, no, no need to no need to rent the Amazon when you can get Bergman in Blu-ray. Um, yeah. See, alliteration. It's fun and and cheap. Um, <laughs> but um but, you know, and actually it's funny to bring up like how Under Capricorn kind of flip-flops around because I saw this early on in like one of the VHSs. I don't remember the company, but I'm assuming it's CBS Video because this film was distributed by Warner Brothers. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the distribution later on would go to Paramount Pictures via CBS. And then Kino Lobor is a company that, much like a Scream Factory or a Shout Factory, licenses titles. And they license this title because it's a little easier to work with CBS video and CBS films uh, than working with um, something like Warner Brothers, where that takes a little bit more time because Warner Brothers has its own archive thing. But you can watch Under Capricorn now, uh, thankfully, a little bit more accessible. The first time I saw the film, I was uh, kind of bored by it. 
and I wasn't in tuned to this form of Hitchcock. My form of Hitchcock was Anthony Perkins dressed up as his mother. That was my Hitchcock or, or, you know, birds attacking Tippi Hedren. That, that was my exposure. That was what I stuck with for years as a kid. So the, something like this was kind of just like not high on my radar. And honestly, the films that we talked about prior, Spellbound and Notorious, didn't come up on my radar until college, really, like in terms of like appreciating them. So uh, under Capricorn, what's interesting watching it now, especially throughout the ser- as we've been going through the series and, and rewatching it a couple times prior to this episode, it's amazing how much it's trying to capture the spirit of another film, whether intentional or not. And we'll jump into a little bit. I want to dive into um, Under Capricorn a little bit more than we did on the first two, because while Spellbound and Notorious have uh, a huge legacy behind them, where talking about them in detail can feel a little bit monotonous, like what else are we going to be able to say about this? There's a lot to talk about with Under Capricorn, because one, it's the last time him and Bergman worked together and two, it's the beginning of the end for uh, transatlantic pictures. Um, so, under Capricorn, directed by me, me, the 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 level below hitch, uh, produced by him and Bernstein, adaptation by birthday boy of yesterday, Hume Cronin. Woo, Hume Cronin coming back once again. We talked about him a little bit with Lifeboat, um, and uh, also he did the adaptation for Rope. The screenplay would go on to be done by James Brighty. Uh, the film stars Michael Wilding, Ingrid Bergman, Joseph Cotton, Margaret Leighton, uh, Cecil Parker, Dennis O'Day, Jack Waiting, uh, Waitling, Harcourt Williams, John Ruddock, Bill Shine. So um, the, 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 the formation of this film is that obviously it's one of two that Hitchcock wants to start with in order to get Transatlantic off the ground. They go to London to film the, to make the movie. And uh, this is Hitchcock kind of returning to London after leaving it to go work for Selznick and make Rebecca. Um, And upon Hitchcock's return to make this film around 48, Hitchcock is met with a lot of um, disdain. Um, And if you're wondering why he was received with disdain, it was not because Hitchcock left Britain to go make movies in America. It had a lot to do with Hitchcock's wartime record. Um, Ryan and you and I had talked about how Hitchcock's um, uncomfortable position uh, interfered with him really uh, getting to be as involved with the uh, making of propaganda films and supporting the war effort in Britain at the time. Um, Obviously Hitchcock was under contract to one David O. Selznick at the time. So, being committed solely to the war effort was not in the cards, especially if you have somebody like Selznick. Other studios made different deals with different directors with the War Department. Yeah, people like Frank Capra, John Huston, John Ford, George Stevens, um, and William Wyler, who essentially are uh, are tasked more so with getting more involved in the war, whether through the studios or through their own initiative. Hitchcock was not in that position. Combined with, obviously, his age and his physical condition, it would have been very hard for Hitchcock to be as involved with the war as he probably would have wanted to be. And so the press really laid into him. And I think it's, obviously, as we look on it now, it's very unfair the way he was treated. Um, 
considering that as we as you talked about with Grant, you know, Grant was able to leave studio influence, but studios held you to a contract. They would not let you go. And it I think that it it's a, it's weird that Hitchcock has to have his homecoming with this film in particular and have to address a lot of these things uh, rather than getting to make this movie. And a lot of the um, uh, the the obsession that Hitchcock would turn to in this film extends off of his work on Rope. Um, we'll go through the plot of Under Capricorn, and as we go through it, we will talk about how that obsession with the technical acumen would not only unravel his collaboration with Bergman, but also um, see the end of one of his first big obsessions with an actress. Um, it's important to note about this film. It's about um, the colony of South New South Wales. <laughs> like, and yeah. as a result, it's basically about the pre the, the, the prison, the prison, uh, occupy the prison population that flourishes in Australia, which it's, it's a, uh, it's a subject that I is not always talked about in film, but I, I think in, in the film, I think it's handled interestingly in a progressive manner for the era. Like it's not a, uh, it's not, it's, it's not glorifying uh, colonialism really. <laughs> um, no, I, think, uh, I mean, they definitely say that they're sending people there that have criminal records you know right and what's interesting and, and the, they as they go through the film they talk a lot more about how how does a past come back to haunt somebody and stuff like that and like the the discretion that is usually practiced in this new south wales area but the basic story of the film is that this new governor of the territory played by cecil parker arrives arrives in um the British uh, in the, in the South New Wales um, with his cousin, um, uh, one Charles Adair played by Michael Wilding um, Wilding. We have talked about before um, on the Shamley silhouette because he was none other than uh, detective inspector Wilfred Smith in stage fright. Again, we're going to bring up the name Wilfred cause it's a great name, right guys? It should be the name of all action heroes, Wilfred the the Wilfred Knight, um, but no, he's basically proposed by Samson Flusky, a um, a businessman who was originally a convict who you know was able to make good. Um, Flusky, played by Joseph Cotton, basically is trying to get uh, Charles to buy land from the government so that then Samson can buy the land from Charles. Um, so, uh, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's an, er also an early predecessor, predecessor to how real estate and politics would work all over the world in the 2020s. <laughs> like <laughs> short of, short of Samson going, what if we, uh, came to another understanding and, uh, uh you bought the land. Like <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's very much that kind of like shady business dealing, um, but it leads Charles Adair um, to uh, Cotton's estate. Um, and realistically, we're, uh, we're, we're kind of drawn back into territory that we've seen before, Ryan. Do you recall a film that was set uh, at the estate of one uh, Maxim de Winter? 
uh, and a place called Manderley. <laughs> this sounds so familiar. Yeah, it, it's almost as if, though, Minyaga Yugila, uh, which is the name of the estate number under Capricorn, is very much an Australian version of uh, of Manderley. Um, now, there's there's a bit of uh, a, a, of interest note in this is that Hitchcock was mainly intending this to be a drama, um, very much a costume drama from what the film basically plays out as for the most part. But there was a lot of emphasis by the studio that was, would end up distributing to really kind of emphasize on the mystery and the horror as it would pertain to Hitchcock's style, right? And so I think that this film finds itself at, uh, at interesting odds with its personality to a certain extent. It doesn't, it doesn't take away from the impact of the film, um, but it does it does seem to have a bit of an identity crisis in that respect because um, it does want to play in the realm of uh, of a de Maurier story, but it also has this element of like a costume drama. I found it weird that actually there, there are shades of like Gone with the Wind if it wasn't terrible <laughs> stuck in this film. So like uh, obviously the estate of uh Minyago Yagila will be the basic source of our uh participation in under Capricorn um which M Minyago Yagila translates into woman why weepest thou which uh that the the whole name and the language uh is purported to not be real although there are sources that say that it is um based around um uh, Kim Camelori uh, uh which is an Australian Aboriginal language um, uh, but the phrase woman, why weepest though, is a phrase in the Bible, um, in the gospel of St. John 2015. Um, so already we're kind of dealing with, you know, this, this familiar territory where, you know, persons kind of brought into the, to the strange goings on in a rich person's house <laughs> and, um, cotton, uh, cotton as Flusky, uh, is, is a troubled man. He's troubled because his wife, Lady Henrietta, played by Ingrid Bergman, um, is uh, in an alcoholic, distressful state. And the whole film plays out as an attempt to get Lady Henrietta back on her feet and to have her reign dominance over her own house, um, while at the same time coming to terms with her relationship with Flesky and how it was formed. Um so I think that what's interesting about Bergman in the film, Ryan, is, is that she's not she, she she this is like the extent of her ability to stretch out her emotional range because she is in a high state of distress in this film. It's basically the third act of Notorious stretched out for a movie <laughs> where she's yeah. not uh, she's not in her best sorts, to say the least. And she also is being slowly poisoned by the housekeeper Millie. So <laughs> there's a lot to, uh, to, uh, to allude to back and forth with it. Um, but, so having not watched the film before, what did you get out of it in terms of not just the Bergman Hitchcock collaboration, but just as a film in general? Uh, it's an okay film. I, you know, if it wasn't made by Alfred Hitchcock, I'd probably be more bored with it. Because he does do, I don't know how long the take is. It has to be over ten minutes long mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. a of a single take when um, when Sam shows up at the house and it starts with him, you know, walking past every door. Then it goes into the dinner where they all sit down, and then you meet uh, 
Ingrid Bergman for the first time. Yeah, which we should note she's not in this movie till about 16 to 17 minutes in. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh so I mean the film is technically really great. Um you know the the Technicolor in it looks really I mean it actually looks really good on Blu-ray. Do you know why it looks this good, Ryan? Do you do, there's a good reason for it. The cinematographer is none other than Jack Cardiff who was one of the few Technicolor-approved uh, cinematographers. He worked with people like Powell and Pressburger on some, er, on their, some of their earliest efforts in Britain. Um, one of his most famous um, uh, contributions to cinema is stuff like The Red Shoes and uh, Black Narcissus, um, where uh, Cardiff paints pictures with his imagery. Like, this is the best collaboration of Hitchcock's imagination within pre-planning and Cardiff being able to execute it because he, the the movie looks like a fucking painting. It's gorgeous. So if it didn't have the really strong technical quality and I mean, Bergman's great in it. I think Joseph Cotton's kind of boring as the (laughs) the male lead. Um, it, It might be because I, you know, I watch when I watch Hitchcock films, I think of, Grant or Jimmy Stewart or someone like that. And I just, I don't know. He just seems kind of dull. And Joseph Cotton is not me. (laughs) Yeah. And, but, but Bergman's fantastic. She's, uh, you know, I, I found, I don't know how many of her films I've seen, maybe five or six, but every time I watch a movie with her, she's really on point. Um, she has a sensitivity and a vulnerability to her performances and everything she does that, makes you fall in love with her and um yeah it's she's you know she's such a great actress and what i've loved lately uh through you is i've kind of gone back and rediscovered you know golden hollywood and whether it's her or carol lombard it's just it's just really fun seeing those actresses uh because back then you know the actresses were the highest paid and they were the ones that sold the movies. Oh yeah. And it, and it was, uh, is, it's really interesting is only a few people like Grant, Jimmy Stewart, Cagney, you know, those guys had the pull and they could be in, you know, the stars of the movie. But for the most part, it was the ladies. Yeah. It, it is interesting to note like how much, you know, like, and, and, and as we've just, dis- as we discussed in a previous episode, talking about Alma Revel, the, the amount of women in the industry that, did hold a lot more sway than you'd think, despite the fact that their contributions are, you know, shoved to the side by men of history. The, 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 when it comes to actresses, women were a big draw and selling point and Bergman's no exception. Her, her, uh, her, her off-screen life and her, uh, you know, was a big selling point also to like fan magazines and stuff. And, um, and it, and it helped propel her on-screen life as such. Um, we didn't talk about it in Spellbound, but there was an affair between her and uh, Gregory Peck on the set. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, from all accounts, it sounds like it was just like it was it was that t- it was during the production. And then it just completely ceased after that. So it's not uh, anything of a um, a huge nature. Um, uh, uh, there's a. Uh, the the secret the relationship came public in People magazine in uh, in an interview in 1987, um, uh, where Peck uh, said, "All I can say is that I had a real love for her. 
Uh, I think that's where I ought to stop. When I was young, she was young. We were involved for weeks in close and intense work. Um, and so, like, I, I think that Bergman Bergman had a charm of her own that, you know, followed her throughout her entire life. And in this film in particular, her charm is basically amplified um, in the way that Notorious does it, too, because Wilding and Cotton are both infatuated with her, but Cotton is... It's funny that you find him boring in the film because I, 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 I agree. I, I, the reason why I don't dismiss him completely is because Cotton is very good at this type of role where he's you know got a lot of internalized anger and is holding it on his face <laughs> um, that I'm like, okay, like he's just doing Joseph Cotton. That's fine. It's not as cool as Shadow of a Doubt. It's fine. It's not as cool as Jebediah and Citizen Kane, but it's fine. So, like, he... But the but that attraction, like torn between two different men, because like Wilding, while he never really explicitly states that he wants Bergman for himself, there's a lot of um, sparks flying between them, obviously because of how Adair is attempting to lift her spirits. Um, it's also the impetus for Millie, the housemaid, to in one of two long uh, monologue sequences basically convince Sam Flesky that uh, Flesky's being cuckolded. <laughs> and um, that that's a one long monologue take. And you were talking about the long takes in this film. This is, uh, this is again, an extension of Hitchcock trying to push those cinematic boundaries. And he does it, obviously, in Rope, where it's the most obvious experiment. He tried to make this film in a series of long takes just like Rope. The production as such, as it was attempting to do this, uh, over-rehearsed um, different scenes in Capricorn, which frustrated Bergman to no end to the point where it was the only time on a set that she ever broke down in tears. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it was as much so that it led to a bit of a row on set where then Bergman acquiesced and said, we'll do it your way. And then Hitchcock said in a quote that I thought was kind of toiling, he's like, it's not my way, it's the right way. But Hitchcock then started backing off of this long take technique because he starts to realize that it's not going to change the 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 impact of the film if it's one long take or not. But there are many scenes where the camera is not stopping for a cut, whether it's going through doorways in a... Uh, off the angle John Ford fashion, or if it's the scene where um, you know they're entering, the, he's entering the house. Um, one that I would argue is a testament to both the camera and Bergman is when Bergman confesses that she is the reason Sam was a convict to begin with before becoming a respected businessman. Um, I. I will say, from my personal opinion, I find the monologue to go on way too long, but she's so great in it that it cancels that out to a certain extent um, because you're drawn to her frustration and anger, and it is an actor's dream to do something of that of what Bergman's doing in that scene. She goes from every emotion possible before the camera even cuts. Yeah, it's it's fascinating when you look at it through the lens of her three films where she has that monologue in Spellbound where she's convincing uh God, what's his character to, to shoot himself where yeah. it's really deliberate, it's really um soft 
and uh and this one is more of you know the actor's monologue yeah it's the melodramatic um woman woman in crisis um monologue that you find in the melodramas of whatnot and i alluded to like it has these shades of gone with the wind and then like now the obvious one on surface would probably be the fact that you're dealing with uh you know the prison population in, uh, the pre- the prison uh society in uh, new south wales and the fact that you know if you're a prisoner if you're if you could be bought as a slave in australia at this time and like if you're if you're not if your work isn't satisfactory they send you back to prison and there's a scene in the movie where bergman's basically taking control of the household and basically says like if you don't follow these rules you'll be sent back to prison um but the other element of it is the melodrama of the era where the 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 torrid affair of a romance becomes heavy heavy melodrama to to sometimes an unbearable degree i think this film does a better job at managing it than most it's not perfect but it does manage to keep you interested in what's going on um specifically by the time we get to the end where the whole film is hanging around the concept of like well why why was Bergman fully thrown into an alcoholic state? Because it can't just be the trouble she's having with Flusky. And it's revealed that Millie has been poisoning her and apparently performing um, shrunken head voodoo rituals on <laughs> Miss uh, Bergman because there's a shrunken head in this movie that's being used to essentially torment her throughout the movie, um, even though we only really see it revealed at the end which again is odd for Hitchcock to not set that up prior. And my guess is, is that it was something that was not as important to his intention of making the movie. He wanted to make a drama and this film, uh, but the film ended up uh, having the, the crutch of Hitchcock trappings as a result. Um, And the film, uh, it, it went through, you know, a, a, a troubled production, as we've been discussing through the various different elements that led to this point. Um, but the 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 capper of it, uh, ultimately with Capricorn, is is that this is a film that was going to make or break a studio that was just being formed. Um, and uh, Hitchcock, basically, in explaining it to Trans- Francois Truffaut years later. He said this film was such a failure that the trust company, which had financed the film, repossessed it. Um, the The people who were investing in Transatlantic Pictures were very worried that Hitchcock was wasting their money. Um, and so when this film comes out and only makes $1.21 domestic and um, $1.46 in foreign territory, this is a bomb. And this unravels transla- Transatlantic Pictures to the point where any of the – following transatlantic picture productions that are done within Warner brothers, um, where a deal was made with Hitchcock and not with transatlantic pictures. That's how Hitchcock got back to work at Warner brothers. Um, is that those films are basically consumed by Warner brothers as transatlantic films. So they're not really transatlantic pictures. Um, and this film was not well received by critics either. Um, Bosley Crowther, my favorite guy to hate, wrote that it seems that neither Bergman nor Hitchcock has tangled here with uh, with stuff of any better than penny dreadful substance and superficial demands. And that's not unfair, even though I think Bosley Crowther can be a dick. He's pretty much on point with this is that it is very much 
um, a on the surface level story. There's nothing deeper, um, and there's nothing that's really. You even saw, yourself said like you didn't know. You don't know if you probably would have even sought this out if Hitchcock's name wasn't on it, or like, or obviously if I hadn't asked you to be on the show. So like, um, so I, so I, apologies, I guess. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, but like, it's a film that I think that's still. Uh, uh, has its merits um, for most part, whether it's the photography, the long takes, Bergman's performance. I think Hitchcock's presence in it uh, as a filmmaker is not the um, the drawing point to watching this film. Um, we're not done with Cotton yet, by the way. Uh, Cotton was known as uh, referring to this film both in interviews and on set as under crappy corn <laughs> and uh to which to which Hitchcock said fuck you you're out of here mister they had only worked together on shadow of a doubt prior to this but Hitchcock wouldn't end up using him for another 6 years until uh Joseph Cotton was on a couple episodes of Alfred Hitchcock presents uh so obviously it took a little time for Hitchcock to get over that very childish quote by Cotton um, you know, there, there are a couple of things that I've attributed to Hitchcock being upset about, whether it's killing the kid in sabotage or, uh, you know, like not getting to, um, go to many other locations and to catch a thief. And then this one in particular, it's like under the crappy corner. It's, it's not even clever, Joseph. It's not even fucking clever. Like it's, it's, it's childish. You're a baby. You're a baby man. Um, but, um, so yeah, this film fails at the box office, but it can't be said that it's entirely based on the film itself. Now, what we're about to talk about is not the direct reason under Capricorn is a failure, but it may have a lot to, but it may have something to do with it. Um, so amidst the production of this film in 1948, 1949, um, there's an Italian filmmaker named Roberto Rossellini um, who was famous within the uh, the Italian neorealism movement, um, Rossellini, uh, a, a director who uh, made such films as Germany Year Zero, Paisan, and Rome Open City, which are very, very good films from the neorealist era. And it's basically his war trilogy where he uh, dissects um, the the rise and the fall of fascism uh, through through the perspective of Italians in there it, it it really centers in on um the lower class um and Rossellini is a director that impressed Bergman Bergman wrote a letter to Rossellini and she wrote that he she admired his films and wanted to make a movie with him um and she and Rossellini set up a joint company for the film um this film would end up becoming a film called Stromboli, um, or also known as Stromboli, Land of God in Italian, it's Stromboli Terra di Dio. Um, and uh, in the midst of the making of this film, Bergman has an affair with Rossellini and becomes pregnant with his child. Bergman um, ended up leaving her husband and her daughter. Um, film critic eventual film critic pat lindstrom um uh for rossellini uh and i said before we were dealing with something that was an injustice in hollywood and this is what it is she's basically blacklisted as a result of this uh affair um and she um uh she was 
basically she 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 was not really allowed to really have any prominence in american uh film culture until she then goes on to win an oscar for anastasia in 1956 um and you know I, we've talked about in this series about like how women are unjustly um uh tossed under a bus um for for like for for just no other reason other than morality and anything like that and this is a clear case of Bergman getting screwed over and i and Ryan you said that Grant had a lot to say about this um in terms of Bergman's treatment by uh, America at this time oh yeah he straight up said it was horrible you know and it, it, the double standard is ridiculous you know the the people that blacklisted her you know the movie people, movie executives, those guys were horrible. Mm-hmm. So they, they have this uh, front of a moral high ground, which they don't even follow. You know what I mean? And and so she, whatever, she has an affair and she's blacklisted. Yeah. And, and uh, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and it's just, it, it's, it's shameful. And if uh, Cary Grant talks about it in... Um, a great book that I've plugged so many times called Evenings with Cary Grant, where he just says it's 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 really unfortunate. And he fought so hard to get her to come back. And, uh, you know, he did. He got her for Indiscreet, which he says to this day is his favorite movie he's ever done. Well, I mean, he can't say to this day he's dead, but. Um, or am I, Ryan? Am I dead? No, I'm here. I'm on the Shamley silhouette over it is. Um <laughs> Um, no, it's true. Like he, and he, there, there, you know, he gets her for a film like Indiscreet and her, but her career is halted. And, and, it, and what I will, in all fairness, it, this isn't just Hollywood deciding to make a decision. Um, this affair caused a scandal in the U.S. Uh, people, uh, church groups, women's clubs, and legislators in more than a dozen states around the country were calling for the film Stromboli to be banned because of Bergman's affair. Um, and Bergman, I will point this out. We're we're in Colorado, uh, and uh, um, uh, Colorado has a little bit of a role to play with this because Bergman was denounced as a powerful influence for evil on the floor of the U.S. Senate by Colorado Senator Edwin C. Johnson. Fuck um, that guy. Yeah, obviously we don't know who the fuck Edward C. Johnson is, um, but uh, we do know who Ingrid Bergman is. Um, well, because here's uh, the thing. I think, uh, if I remember right, Indiscreet is the first movie she filmed in America after um, her little indiscretion, I guess. You could say Indiscreet was about an indiscretion by a person who did something that was an indiscretion. That did, that joke didn't work. I'm sorry, uh, but <laughs> but yeah, no, it was. It was one. Of, it was one of the. It was one of the the first ones to get her back here. And then she obviously uh, actually was, it was filmed in the uh, UK. Sorry, my bad. Oh no, no, but um, but it is one of those ones that carries over because you have somebody like Cary Grant in the movie. It's gonna get seen, whether by a bunch or by a little. Um, obviously, at a time when Indiscreet comes out, studios are dealing with another issue, which is called television. So you know, um, but um, but yeah, she wins. She wins an Oscar for Anastasia. Her relationship with Hitchcock dissolves. And there's a there's a lot of um, uh, reasons for this. 
there they really wouldn't be fully reunited in a certain sense till near the end of Hitchcock's life. Uh, amongst the many instances where Bergman was actually there at the AFI tribute for Hitchcock, where she had nothing but praise for his um, abilities as a director. But I think in Secret History of Hollywood talks about this in much more elaborate fashion. But there's there's a bottom line of like Hitchcock felt a little bit betrayed by Bergman going from one auteur to another auteur. But what is left in the legacy of it is these three strong films that uh, that 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 are a testament to Bergman's ability as an actress and Hitchcock's ability as a director. Um, there's a uh, there's a quote by um, a I want to get his right a festival director named Andrew Pike um, that was uh, done for an interview when talking about Hitchcock Bergman films. And I think he's actually very correct when he says this is that it seems to have been a collaboration from which both gained a great deal. Bergman was stretched creatively in three films of a great emotional intensity and Hitchcock was driven to express some of his own personal anguish for the first time in his work. And I think that's important because like not just it's not just Bergman being a brilliant actress. It's also that this is the first time Hitchcock really starts throwing in heavy psychological um uh triggers for him in his films whether it's the mother issues whether it's the uh, attempts to create a woman which happens in notorious and uh under capricorn to a certain extent those are tropes in hitchcock's work that are dominant throughout the 50s and the 60s and e even up until <clears throat> the last film family plot so we we're left with a with a collaboration that i think was very important for hitchcock um, and also important for Bergman's legacy, like it really does solidify Bergman's uh, um, reputation uh, as a great actress that gets her in. She Bergman, we should mention, after she wins her Oscar for Anastasia, um, she uh, and this is her second Oscar that she won, but this is the first one she wins after the scandal. Um, you know, that direct the director of that film, Anatole Litvak, said she's one of the greatest actresses in the world. And she off he offered a description of her at the time that she did this movie when she's coming out of this um, horrible uh, scandal uh, is that Ingrid looks better now than she ever did. She's 42, but she looks divine. She is a simple, straightforward human being. Through all her troubles, she held to the conviction that she had been true to herself and it had made her quite a person. She is happy in her new marriage. Her three children by Rossellini are beautiful, and she adores him. So now, obviously, though, she would not stay with Rossellini long. She left him in 1957 and married Lars Schmidt in 1958 uh, until a divorce in 1975. Um, Bergman would go on to um, uh, even further acclaim even later in life, not just reflecting on her legacy, but also working in other films. She won her third Oscar um, and for a supporting actress category this time for her performance in Murder on the Orient Express. Um, and she would uh, end up passing away in 1982 at the age of 67 in London, England, leaving behind a legacy that extends far beyond Elsa Lunt. And uh, far even beyond any scandal that could have um, uh, plagued her career. It's funny, actually, to, to wrap up that scandal and to wrap up this episode is like it's interesting that like 
to think about how much that scandal was a um, an issue with people, it ended up becoming jokes in things. And I'll, um, if I can find the clip, I'll lay it in at the end of the episode. But there is a clip from the Jack Benny program where there's a joke where uh, the tenor Dennis Day is uh, joking that he's been drafted into the Navy. And um, they go, uh, they, Jack asks him if he's going to France to, uh, to free something. And Dennis goes like, no, we're going to Stromboli to free Ingrid. And the laugh, the laugh in the studio is freaking loud. And it's because that subject was so, so prevalent in people's minds. Um, and that's the power of Ingrid Bergman being as popular as she was, that for her to be in this was such a shock to people. <laughs> Um, but <clears throat> that, that's going to wrap up the legacy of Ingrid Bergman in Hitchcock's filmography. Um, probably I'd argue one of the most important collaborations Hitchcock ever had, if not the most important, because for all the other collaborations had with actors like Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart, um, uh, and he, you know, I, I, I think there's a dual duality to this because the relationship he had with Tedrin is important for other reasons. Um, this one is important because it allows Hitchcock to become the more thoughtful filmmaker than we, uh, that we, that we tend to overanalyze and praise to this day. Um, whether it's, you know, in books written by famous film, film historians, uh, great podcasts in Britain, uh, or uh, or a podcast being done by an idiot in a Scottish cap. So you know, like um, th- this this collaboration produced three three important films for various different reasons. Two of them are uh, well known classics. One is you know more or less forgotten, but still has its merits. Um, did you have anything you would want to add to 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 the conversation we've been having, Ryan, and how Bergman? Uh, how you feel watching these three Bergman films and, you know, really seeing how that collaboration paid off. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just, again, I absolutely adore her. I, I love her grace. I love her presence on camera. She's one of those actresses that transcends time. You know, she's so much more than Casablanca. I know that's the one that everybody knows her for, but she really holds her own in movies and, She's uh, she's just a phenomenal actress, yeah. and she also shares the same birthday as me. So, great things happen on August twenty ninth. Oh, so so you're, so you're saying uh, Humphrey Bogart was in love with both of you? Is what you're saying? Right. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm torn. I'm I'm torn, Louis. I don't know if I want to go with Bergman or if I want to go with Frost. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, it's it's so fun watching her. I I love her presence on screen. Mm-hmm. She's. Uh, She's one of those people you can see why she was a big star because she's she's just it. She has it. Yep. You know, she can hold a candle to anybody. She can go toe-to-toe with anybody. She can play sensitive. She can play damaged. She can play tough. She can play scary. She can play scary. That's a key thing for her, I think. And I think that ability to play scary in certain respects is what makes Under Capricorn worth watching because she uh, – she she'll scare the shit out of you in certain respects with the way she's thrashing around in bed and stuff and seeing things that aren't there. And if you fuck with her, she'll shoot you. Oh <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, no, no, no. To be fair though, and, and under Capricorn, they had to go shoot that horse Ryan because that horse was gonna die. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, struggling from the broken leg. 
Um, that's a thing about the that's a thing about under Capricorn. The whole one of the biggest issues I have with under Capricorn is how long it takes for Michael Wilding to go. Well, what are you talking about? It was an accident, and then the whole problem is resolved. But we do get some great scenes between Cotton and Bergman in the middle of it. But um, but anyway, that's gonna wrap up this whole conversation. Ryan, you were the first guest we had on the Shamley Silhouette. You were among the last we are having. Um, I can't think of a better way to wrap up the trilogy that is the Frost trilogy. Um, you know, um, years later, I will decide we need to do a prequel trilogy. Um, and then uh, a couple years else will go by. I'll sell my uh, company to Disney and then they'll reboot this trilogy with you. And uh, um, I don't know, maybe Adam Driver will kill you at the beginning of this of new trilogy. I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> um, but um God. Yeah, but thank you once again for coming aboard to on this journey to begin with and for staying with it as long as you have. So Anytime. You know, I love movies. I know. I know you love movies. I know you love classic movies. And I know you love a debonair man named Cary Grant, which, you know, guys, if you're listening to this and you haven't read Ryan's article on Cary Grant, you need to seek that out. Um, he's also, right. He's probably the greatest article that's ever been published in the history of the Internet. Yes, in the history of the Internet. You know, not – not any of the hard-hitting journalism that has been exposing the corrupt powers that be. No, no, no. It is wow. Cary Grant and what Ryan assesses about Cary Grant. No, no, but it is a good article because you do go through, you go beat for beat on his um, on his uh, performances, and you really you're not shimp- you're not skimping on the knowledge in the middle of it. Like it's not like he's good in this, he's bad in this. Like you elaborate, you detailed. In a way that I, I I appreciate the way you format it because it there's almost a journey you kind of go through with it and seeing like okay well the Grant persona as it is established um, it works better as you get down the line because obviously like the the less the less Grants involved uh, both on screen and just personality wise those are obviously not at the top of your list but as you keep going you start seeing the things that make Grant appealing to this day. Um, uh, and then I can't, and I can't wait for when you eventually do Carol Lombard, um, for a multitude of reasons. It means you'll have to watch a movie with another suave debonair comedian that, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, one's that to be or not to be. Of course. Oh, okay. I didn't know but, which one but, I was. Don't worry, Ryan. I think you'll be watching that movie sooner than you think. Um, <laughs> um but, uh, that's going to wrap it up for the Shamley silhouette this time around. You can follow the Shamley silhouette at real where we are uploading the episodes, uh, a little bit more frequently now to get us to this end point. Our final episode will be coming out at the end of August with our special guest, Adam Roach, in a pre-recorded conversation. Um, on the next episode of the Shamley Silhouette, we aren't done with uh, a three-hour conversation on a single film. We're not done with that kind of uh, uh, mentality yet because we're going to have Marsha Rosales on one last time to talk about a British Gamo classic uh, that has been up to this point not really acknowledged or discussed, but it is one of the most important films in Hitchcock's career for a multitude of reasons. I speak, of course, of Young and Innocent, and you will get to hear seven hours worth of conversation about the importance of that film, courtesy of Marshall Rosales. Um, but until next time, good night.
Mary, Mary, I begged you to stay out of it. Now, Dennis, forget this silly talk and get into the studio. Oh, I can't. I got to report to my regiment. We're being sent overseas. Uh, you mean Mary, that... Mary, you won't listen to me, will you? Now, for your own good, let me ask him. I'm gray anyway. <laughs> you and your regiment are going to be sent overseas, huh, Dennis? Uh-huh. To Germany to take over supplies? No, to Stromboli to bring back Ingrid. Dennis! Do me a favor, will you? Now, stop talking and rehearse your song. Okay.